Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to the History of Islam podcast, episode 6, A Son of Quraysh. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to another episode of the History of Islam podcast. The Roman Empire has and always will be highly revered because of its longevity. Very few empires have stood the test of time as well as the Roman Empire has. In fact, no empire period has stood anywhere near as long as the Roman Empire has. And one of the main reasons for this is the issue of succession, establishing something that will remain aloft and standing high long after you are gone has been a very difficult obstacle to overcome for even the greatest of conquerors. Alexander the Great's empire fell apart emphatically almost immediately after his death. Genghis Khan, the Khan of Khans, destroyer of empires, the man who literally decimated the earth's population, even he didn't have a working solution for this problem. Within a few years after his death, the empire that he had forged out of iron and blood had already started to fall apart. The Mongols had already started to fight amongst themselves and would eventually completely lose their identities and become, ironically, culturally conquered by the people they had physically conquered and physically subjugated. The state that Qusay built in Mecca was no exception to this, and the case was no different. After the death of Qusay, the issue of succession hit full flame during the lives of his grandchildren. During the life of Qusay's direct successor, his eldest son, Abdul-Dar, there were some rumblings of discontent, but the legacy of his father Qusay and the will of Qusay were still present and strong, even though he had long gone. However, by the time Abdul-Dar himself passed away, Qusay had become but a distant memory, and with a new generation entering the picture, which may have included people who had never even seen Qusay, or who had only seen him as a weak, frail old man, they hadn't seen him in his prime as the man who had orchestrated the conquest of Mecca. And this new generation wanted a piece of the cake. And the grandchildren of Qusay were prepared to fight to the death for what they saw as rightfully theirs. 
The two opposing camps in Mecca had mainly formed around the sons of Abd al-Dar who held all the responsibilities and the positions of power that Qusay had bestowed upon them and this camp was mainly backed by the traditionalists who believed that nobody had the right to take away what Qusay had given no matter what. A bit like today in the USA regardless of whether increased gun control for example may be necessary or even the better course of action a good amount of people would be against gun control no matter what as they believe that nobody has the right to take away what is a constitutional right the second camp in Mecca had formed around the sons of Abdumanaf and for them the times were changing they had risen in power wealth and prestige and they wanted the share of power in Mecca to reflect the situation on the ground they probably even saw themselves as superior and basically better than the sons of Abd al-Dar leading to their increasing agitation for a greater share in the power one of their primary avenues towards a greater standing within the tribe of Quraysh and the community in Mecca was trade. The sons of Abd al-Manaf are credited with forging a series of very vital deals that allowed them and the Quraysh to essentially increase their trade with the outside world. These deals gave them access to the markets of the Yemeni kingdom of Himyar to the south, the Abyssinians to the west, the Byzantines to the north and the Persians to the north or northwest. The quarreling in Mecca began to reach boiling point when the amount of people who declared themselves neutral in the matter became increasingly smaller and smaller and more and more clans in Mecca began pledging themselves to either Beni Abdimanef, the sons of Abdimanef, or Beni Abdul the sons of Abdul And when I say pledge, I mean they pledged their lives and this was an unbreakable promise that They'll support their claim even if it meant that they would die. And in the fashion of the Arabs, after the oaths were sworn, the alliances were cemented by the leaders of the clans dipping their hands in perfume or fragrance oils, and the scene looked set for a final showdown. With the people of Mecca split decisively into two opposing halves, they were ready to fight for their honour to the last tooth. And as the two sides prepared to leave the sacred sanctuary to duke it out, Negotiations were suddenly called for and both sides obliged the call. At the end of the day, the issue was sorted out diplomatically, not on the battlefield, but on the negotiations table. The sons of Abdu'l-Manaf were given the right of watering the pilgrims and collection of the tax, and the sons of Abdu'l-Dar retained the remaining three of the five main responsibilities. All-out civil war in Mecca was prevented right at the final hour. The next course of action that the sons of Abdu'l-Manaf had to take, the next decision that they had to make, was who amongst them will take the privileges that they had just won. Well, this was sorted out quite smoothly and quite quickly, and after a lottery, the privileges were given to one of the brothers, who was named Hashim ibn Abdu'l-Manaf ibn Qusay. And Hashim was neither the eldest nor the youngest amongst his brothers. He was actually a twin. And by the way, there is a legend that rises up as a result of this. And I just thought it would be quite interesting to mention. And basically it is said that Hashim and his twin Abdashams were conjoined. And their father's solution to this predicament was to simply cut them apart with his sword. Now just to be clear, this didn't harm them physically to a great extent when they grew up to be men. I'm sure they both had some sort of scar in the region where they were conjoined. Uh, it was actually the toes. Uh, as a consequence of their father's actions. However, 
the Arabs in their superstition claimed that this was some kind of omen and the consequence of cutting them apart was more than the direct physical harm that it, it, it could have brought. And they basically said that Abdu'l-Manaf should have never used his sword, a weapon, an instrument of war, to cut his children apart. Because due to that choice, his two twin sons, their offspring, their descendants included, would be cursed to always fight each other. I just thought that was an interesting little legend to mention. But anyway, moving on. It seems like pretty much all the Arabs back then were known not by the names given to them by their parents at birth, but rather by some kind of nickname praising either them and their actions or the gods that they worshipped. Hashim's grandfather Qusay, as we have seen, was actually named Zayd at birth. Hashim's father was actually named Murira at birth, but his mother pledged him to the gods and his nickname became essentially a glorification to, uh, to her favourite idol. And he became most commonly known as Abd Manaf, which means slave of Manaf, Manaf being the idol. And Hashim was just like his father and his grandfather before him. He was named Amr at birth. And he picked up his nickname Hashim, which meant pulverizer or grinder, because of a special broth or soup that he used to distribute, which was made from grain and pulverized bread. And he was loved and renowned for this because it sort of saved Mecca, or at least the poor people in Mecca, during a time of famine and drought that hit Mecca pretty hard. And in a poem praising Hashim for this generous, life-saving practice, it mentioned that Hashim imported his grain from the Levant. And for those of you who don't know, the Levant is basically Greater Syria, which today would compromise of the modern nations of Syria, Palestine, Lebanon... Jordan and Israel so that western region of the Fertile Crescent so the Fertile Crescent if you could picture it on your minds is a crescent that strikes through Egypt uh, the Nile Delta uh, greater Syria and then into the Euphrates Tigris River system so Mesopotamia while the credit for negotiating the many treaties that paved the way for Quraysh to expand their contacts and to expand their trade network is actually shared amongst the sons of Abdu'l-Manaf, as we mentioned earlier, Hashim had the independent distinguished credit for the seasonal major caravans, which were known as Rihlat al-Shita'i wasayf, the journey of the winter and the journey of the summer. And what this would entail is basically during the winter, a caravan would set out south towards the Yemeni kingdom of Himyar, where they could get a hold of the trade goods of not only the Yemen, but also the trade goods of Abyssinia and even India. Now, the exact nature of the trade goods that they would get from there is quite disputed. Personally, I believe that the goods they got varied, meaning that it wasn't the exact same every single year. But like any business, they probably had a few things, a few staple things that were basically safety goods. So these were the things that they knew for sure that they could sell pretty easily and make a tidy little profit on. For example, leathers, which were in high demand, not only by the average civilian, but also by the imperial powers to the north, the Byzantines and the Sasanis, who would use the leather to equip their armies. And then also varying from year to year, they would have other goods as well as their safety items. 
such as maybe spices from India, for example. Goods that might be a bit more risky, a bit more hard to get a hold of. Maybe the opportunity to get a hold of them wasn't as consistent from year to year. So maybe one year it would be leather and animal hides and spices. And then the next year, maybe spices aren't doing so well. So they change it up and it's leather and ivory. So that was the journey of the winter. In the summer, they would turn around and head north and sell their goods and trade in the Byzantine Empire, usually stopping at a city called Basra, which is not to be confused with the modern day city of Basra in Iraq. Basra is in Syria. It is about 100 kilometers, which is about 60 miles south of the city of Damascus. And in those times, Basra was the capital of the Roman province of Arabia. And while they were in the Byzantine Empire, while they were in the city of Basra, as you can imagine, they wouldn't just sell their goods and then that's it, pack up and go home. They would also do more trading. So they would try and pick up trade goods in the Byzantine Empire that are only available in the Byzantine Empire to sell in Yemen when they went there the next year and also pick up the things that they needed. So it would become like a cycle of going south and going north and going south and going north, um, exploiting their geographical position as middlemen to pick up the goods that were in demand and then try and carve out a, a profit for themselves. Hashim, while certainly not the first Arab or even the first Qurashi, meaning member of the tribe of Quraysh, to trade in this fashion, he was the person that popularized it, so to speak, uh, within the tribe of Quraysh. He was the man who basically made what became known as the journeys of the winter and the summer a, a common practice, a tradition, an institution even for the tribe of Quraysh. While on one of these trips north, Hashim stopped over at one of the main halts of the ancient trade routes, an oasis known at the time as Yathrib. However, this stopover ended up being a little bit longer than a normal stopover because while he was there, Hashim married one of the noblemen in Yathrib. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Eventually, he set out again to continue his journey, but he would never see his wife again. In fact, it wasn't just his new wife that he would never see. He would never see his hometown of Mecca again. Hashim caught a fatal fever and died on his travels. After Hashim passed away, his position and his privileges went to his brother, Al-Muttalib. The years pass and one day while Al-Muttalib was sitting by the Kaaba as the people of Mecca did, you know, you finish a day's work for example, you go and sit by the Kaaba, that's what they did. You have a chat, you relax, you socialize with the people. Well, Al-Muttalib was doing just that. He was sitting by the Kaaba when a man came up to him and said to him, Yeah, Al-Muttalib, oh, oh Al-Muttalib, you know, on my travels, 
I stopped in Yathrib and I saw a young boy who looked to me like he was a Qurashi. He looked to me like he was from the tribe of Quraysh. So when I approached him and I asked him who he was, the boy told me that he was the son of Hashim. And I can almost imagine Al-Muttalib sitting up to attention in his chair after those words. In, in disbelief. Hashim who? My brother Hashim? And the guy basically confirmed it. It was Hashim ibn Abd Manaf. There was no mistake about it. So Al-Muttalib got up and while standing in the shade of the Kaaba, he swore to never return unless his nephew was with him. And he set out to do just that. When Al-Muttalib got to Yathrib, he ran into a major hurdle. Of course, he expected the mother to naturally be reluctant to give up her son. However, this woman must have been crazy because when she learned that the uncle of her child was here to get him back, she started to call her kinsmen to help. She started to call for war. And after some of the pretty pointless things that you've seen the Arabs go to war for, I'm sure that is exactly what you're expecting. That's exactly what you're expecting to go down. However, fortunately, in this case, the people let the boy himself decide and they would simply support his decision. If the child wanted to go, then he was free to unite himself with his uncle and his father's people. But if he chose to stay, then Al-Muttalib would have to take him over their dead bodies. Al-Muttalib managed to convince the boy to come with him, but he was still quite sceptical that the people of Yathrib would just sit there and let him take the child just like that. So he ultimately decided to maintain a level of secrecy when leaving Yathrib and when travelling to Mecca. So when he entered Mecca and his people basically asked him who the child was sitting on his camel, he either avoided answering or he told them, lying, that the boy was just a servant of his. By the time the boy grew up, this had stuck, and he was known not by his name, but by a nickname, which I'm sure you have come to expect by now. And the nickname was Abd al-Muttalib, the slave of al-Muttalib. And just out of interest, Abd al-Muttalib's real name, the name that his mother gave him at birth, was Sheba. And this was because he had a patch of silver or white hair on his head. And that was basically the Arabic word for grain hair. It's a bit like naming your child Africa because they have a birthmark that looks a little bit like the outline of the continent on their calf. When Abdul Muttalib came of age, he found himself in a dispute, a financial dispute with one of his uncles over his inheritance. And this uncle was basically withholding a portion of Hashim's estate. And Abdul Muttalib, by the nature of being the son of Hashim, was a rightful heir. And when Abdul Muttalib went to his kinsmen, his cousins, his second cousins, seeking help and justice, they refused to get involved in what they saw as a private matter between him and his uncle. And just a quick little detour here before we carry on. I just want to make something clear what exactly a second cousin is because I myself used to get confused by the distinction between a cousin and a second cousin and a third cousin. Think of it like this. A cousin is someone who you have grandparents in common with. So if your cousin is the son of your uncle, for example, you have the same grandparents as each other. So keeping that in mind, with a th- with a th- with a uh, a second cousin, you have the same great grandparents. 
you have great grandparents in common. With a third cousin, you have the same great great grandparents in common, and so on. So with fourth, it's great great great. So for Abdul Muttalib, his first cousins were the grandchildren of Abdul Manaf, and his second cousins were the grandchildren of Qusay. So with every increase in number, fourth, fifth, you just go up a generation. Okay, so now that is clear, let us return to our story. Abdul Muttalib finding himself in this predicament, finding himself basically helpless with no one wanting to support him in his dispute with his uncle, he was forced to look for help elsewhere. And following by the example of his great-grandfather Qusay, he contacted one of his uncles from his mother's side in Yathrib. And unlike his kinsmen in Mecca, Abdul Muttalib's Yathrib connection were willing to help him and had no problem with getting involved between him and his uncle. And pretty much as soon as the message got to them, one of Abdul Muttalib's Yathribi uncles made his way all the way from Yathrib to Mecca with 80 riders to aid his nephew. This maternal uncle was named Abu Asad and he was a no-nonsense type man, a man of fiery temper. And after finding out that Abdul Muttalib's offending uncle was sitting by the Kaaba, he rushed over there with 80 men flanking him until he was standing over him with his shadow blocking out the sun. And with his sword in hand, brandished and ready, he said to him, I swear by the Lord of this house, meaning the Kaaba, You shall return to the son of our sister his rights, or I'll fill you up with this sword. And that was actually quite a funny, funny quote to me when I read it. It's a bit like saying, uh, I'll pump you full of lead while holding a gun. I just didn't think it was applicable in the same way to someone holding a sword. Anyway, with this threat in mind, the offending uncle gave in. And in that very same spot in front of everyone, Abdul Muttalib was granted the inheritance that was rightfully his. As the years passed, Abdul Muttalib became a highly respected man. And as one by one each of his uncles began to pass away, he became the clear candidate for the chieftain of the sons of Abdul Manaf. And when his uncle Al-Muttalib, the man who had brought him from Yathrib, passed away, the rights of Siqaya and Rifada, watering the pilgrims and the tax, were passed on to him. It was said that Abdul Muttalib was a very pious man very much in love with the Kaaba itself and he used to even sleep within the vicinity of the Kaaba due to the amount of time that he actually spent there and one night when he was doing just this he saw a vision he saw a dream telling him that he must dig he must dig for Zemzem what is Zemzem? Zemzem is a lost well and it was a lost well that had become a bit of an item of myths a bit of an item of legends and it was said that it was dug by Ishmael and his father or it had sprouted up by ways of a miracle for Ishmael and his mother when they were in need. Regardless of how it came about, the well of Zemzem was now lost and the Meccans didn't know where it was. And this was because one of the early tribes that resided in Mecca, when they were being invaded, they basically covered it up so that the invaders wouldn't be able to benefit from the well and they wouldn't be able to live on the land. And as we all know by now, knowledge of wells locations, knowledge of where water sources are in Arabia is a very vital piece of information. But their little play didn't work out because at the end of the day they were kicked out of Mecca and the invaders took their place and they managed to get water from other sources. 
Anyway, going back to Abdul Muttalib. Abdul Muttalib went home and picked up two pickaxes, one for himself and one for his son. And he set about looking for some of the cues that he had seen in the dream to start his digging. By the time Abdul Muttalib had actually started digging and his tools were loudly thudding and picking away at the ground next to him, he had already attracted a significant crowd and they were clamoring to take a closer look at this unusual activity that was going down. And despite the respect that was generally felt for Abdul Muttalib, it wasn't long before the people around him began to protest against his actions and some of them even tried to physically stop him from his digging. And this was because one of the cues that Abdul Muttalib had seen in his dream was blood on the sand. And usually the reason there would be blood anywhere near the Kaaba was because it was quite common for people to sacrifice animals to their favorite idols within the vicinity of the Kaaba. So Abdul Muttalib was not only digging pretty close to the Kaaba, which in itself was seen as quite a sacrilegious act, he was also digging at a site where a sacrifice had just taken place. And, you know, who would want their hard-earned sacrifice to be possibly nullified by some idiot just digging? Um, this was the sacred sanctuary to them, you know. This was the property of the gods, a sacred shrine. You can't just dig here. And you already are aware of the rule that you can't kill any animals or cut any trees or anything alive cannot be harmed within the sacred sanctuary of any shrine. So naturally, they try to stop him. But Abdul Muttalib was determined as ever and he simply ordered his son to stop digging and protect him instead and to make sure that nobody could disturb him from his task. And while in this moment of vulnerability, standing in the shadow of the Kaaba, Abdul Muttalib made a solemn vow to the gods that if they granted him ten sons who could and would protect him, he would sacrifice one of them as thanks. The situation was incredibly tense and could have turned out much worse, but the people were caught by surprise. Unfortunately, the two idols that Abdul Muttalib was digging next to were not one of the favorites. To cut a long story short, Abdul Muttalib was ultimately right in his decision to refuse to stop digging. He eventually struck gold, and by gold, I mean water. He cried out a loud thanksgiving to the gods, and a large crowd began to form and multiply in number around him. In addition to the well of Zamzam, Abdul Muttalib had also found the treasure that had been buried alongside the well by the old inhabitants of Mecca. And as he began to pull out the buried treasure, the people of Mecca greedily claimed the right to a share in it. And being the man that he was, Abdul Muttalib agreed to this, and a lottery was cast to determine who would get what. At the end of the day, when the lottery was over, some of the treasure had gone to Abdul Muttalib himself, some of it had gone to the Kaaba and its maintenance, and the vast majority, the rest of it, went to people living in Mecca that were not of Quraysh. The people then tried to claim a share in the waters of Zemzem, but Abdul Muttalib staunchly refused this. He was convinced that this was his divine right, and it would not be something that he would give up freely. Unfortunately, that is all for today's episode. Thank you very much for listening. Next episode, we will be looking at some of the final aspects of Abdul Muttalib's life. And then we shall begin with the birth of the Prophet Muhammad. I know I've been saying that for the past couple of episodes now, but hopefully next episode is going to be the one where we begin with the life of the Prophet himself and then follow him through his life to witness the birth of Islam and the birth of the Islamic State. Thank you very much for listening. 
If you want to get in contact, then head over to the blog at historyofislampodcast.blogspot.com and use the contact page. There's quite a bit of extra content and resources on there. So if you are interested in that, head over to there. Otherwise, I'll see you next Thursday. Goodbye. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.